Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, trans rights and wrongs. We look at the closure of the Tavistock, Britain's leading gender identity development service for children. The TAVI, as it's known, is a mental health trust in North London. Its name comes from Tavistock Square, where it was originally based, and it developed a specialism in helping young people who were questioning their gender identity. In the 2010s, the number of referrals to the TAVI increased dramatically, from fewer than 100 in 2010 to more than 2,500 in 2018. That coincided with the decision to lower the age at which puberty blockers were prescribed from 15 to just 10. Previously, young trans people who wanted that treatment had to travel to the USA or Holland. But as the number of prescriptions increased, so did concerns that ideology might be trumping best medical practice and that young people who might benefit from other treatments were being given drugs by clinicians who feared they might otherwise be dubbed transphobic. We'll be hearing from Hannah Barnes, whose book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children, is published by Swift Press. And from Tyler, who transitioned from female to male with the help of the Tavi, along with Tyler's mum, Joe. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. And it is a brilliant read, I promise. You get details about how to subscribe over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Before we hear from Hannah Barnes, then let's welcome Tyler and Tyler's mom, Joe, to the conversation. Welcome both. Hi there. Hello. Tyler, let's have a little bit of your story, if you don't mind, of your transition when you realised you would like to be male rather than female as you were born. So I have always been quite masculine. I never really felt very feminine. Can't remember a time where I was ever very feminine, um, you know, with quotations, because, you know, that means different things to everyone. But I, first of all, was referred to the Tavistock in August of 2016. And I had a lengthy wait for that, I think. Um, the previous year they had referrals, so we had to wait nine months for that first appointment. But I think you were about 14 when you came out as being male. Yeah, so I first of all came out to family, close friends yeah, at the age of 14. And I didn't see any clinician until I was uh, 16. And presumably puberty had begun by that stage, had it? Yes, so I'd already been through most of my puberty, yeah. So what kind of treatment did the Tavistock offer you? Most of all, it was just to do with the mental health side of things. I think there's a lot of narrative out there that we pushed into certain avenues, a lot of it to do with surgical stuff and the medical roots of it. But a lot of it was just to do with how I was feeling mentally and what my gender identity meant to me. And, you know, it was a very lengthy process. And I don't feel like anything was ever pushed on to me. I felt like I was given lots of time to think a lot of things through. 
Yeah, so I think initially their approach was watch and wait. And I think we had almost a year, it was around 10 months plus of counselling. And I think at every appointment we had, we actually saw the same two clinicians. Sometimes they saw us together and sometimes they saw us separately and they gave me a chance to talk about how I was feeling about things. And they spoke to Tyler about more sensitive issues. But at no point did they ever say, this is the journey. They said so many trans people go down different routes and many don't have any medical intervention. And there's so many different things that can happen. So the best part, the first year when we actually saw them was counselling and very much taking that watch and wait approach. Yeah. So I didn't start on my blockers until May of 2017. So that was when I was, you know, between 15 and 16. And I then didn't start testosterone across sex hormones until July of 2018. So coming out at the age of 14, I didn't have any medical intervention until much later on. So there was a very lengthy process of discussion and, you know. More than three and a half years in total. Nothing felt rushed. If anything, I think our experiences felt like it was the opposite. It was very slow, very considered. And I think there were times when we just thought there was literally no stone we felt they hadn't overturned and explored. Absolutely. From fertility and future to all sorts of different things, even just being gender questioning, just constantly asking what makes you think you're trans? How, How does that manifest for you? And also went through every aspect of my life from literally the day I was born, whether I was a cesarean or a natural birth, literally they went through every corner and aspect of my life. I felt that everything was gone through. My life and my parents, a really comprehensive medical and psychological assessment at the start when they asked everything about every aspect of all of our lives and our immediate families. So in a sense then, Tyler, you are a happy customer of the Tavistock. And Joe, you sound like you're very happy to endorse the decisions that Tyler has made and the treatments that he received at the Tavistock. But there was this significant increase in the number of patients being treated by the Tavistock and the age at which puberty blockers could be prescribed was reduced from 15 to 10. Based on your personal experience, Tyler, do you think that somebody as young as 10 should be prescribed puberty blockers? Well, I think, first of all, I'd like to say that, you know, everything with puberty blockers is reversible. It's something that I like to describe as it puts a pause on puberty. So it gives the adolescent a chance to think things through and have that really fundamental time to work out if this is right for that person. And also, it's really great to have the support of the people at Tavistock mm-hmm. to talk through. They talk through everything extensively about what hormone blockers means and what it will do for you and the things it can do for you. And actually, I think for me, if I had realised that I was trans a lot earlier and had the language to put it together, I think I would have had a much easier time. I wouldn't have had to have the surgery that I had. I had my double mastectomy in November of 2020. That could have been a major investment surgery that I wouldn't have had to have if I were to have been put on hormone blockers um, at an earlier age. I think it's definitely the right thing for a lot of people. I also, I don't think anybody is saying that you're going to have one conversation with a 10-year-old and ask them. It's going to be done in the context of the support around the family, the parents, clinicians, and it will be a considered process where people, as Tyler rightly says, is pausing puberty the right thing because you are questioning and exploring your gender identity and to put a pause on that to give you that space before you get to the point you say that Tyler has had major invasive surgery 
which had that happened earlier, that might not have been the case. But I think it's unfair to imply, and I'm not saying you're doing that, but a lot of people think you ask a 10-year-old, they say yes, and then the next day these injections start happening. So even if they did bring the age down to where it's appropriate for those youngsters, it's not going to be done lightly. Sure, but there is... To say the least, mixed evidence, isn't there, about the benefits of puberty blockers? It's been suggested that the reversibility, which you talk about, has been exaggerated and there might be lifelong consequences and that the scale at which the Tavistock was issuing puberty blockers suggested that in some cases anyway, they were ignoring alternative treatments that might better have served those patients? Well, I can't comment on other people's experiences, but I'm in a lot of trans private groups and I've heard nothing but good experiences about the intervention that people have had. And and I speak for myself with that as well. I found that the care that I had was an absolute lifesaver. And I mean, that literally the intervention I had saved my life and I now am going to have a much better life because I'm much more comfortable in myself and I'm much more authentic. I think the other thing is that clearly, and I think everybody would acknowledge there's not enough research into hormone blockers in children. Now, hormone blockers are designed as hormone blockers. People talk about it as being experimental. And I think that's also misleading. Lots of people are prescribed hormone blockers for a whole range of reasons. It suppresses what hormones do, Mm -hmm. including children who can have very early onset puberty. So, you know, nobody's panicking or stressing about that. I totally accept that there's more research that needs to be done, but it's not as if this is medication designed for something else and it's completely experimental. Hormone blockers are designed to block hormones. More research for sure, but at a really critical time, they can give you the space that can make all of the difference. Why did you say, Tyler, that they were literally a lifesaver for you? Well, I'm trans, I'm a trans man. I felt that it was something that I absolutely needed to do as a necessity to carry on my life. I felt uncomfortable in the way that I went through puberty. I wasn't happy with the changes that going on. And I'm, I feel that I am male. I've always felt comfortable in my masculinity and that's how I want to live my life. And that's how I feel. So I think I don't really have a better answer than just that's what I felt that I needed to do to continue and be happy and confident and authentic in myself. And I think that's the case for a whole host of people. And I think as a parent, in some ways, feeling a bit of a bystander watching this unfold, the levels of distress that I was witnessing in my child who was experiencing gender dysphoria and gender incongruence was incredibly distressing for me as a parent and really very clear to me that he needed an intervention and he needed help. So at every stage, we worked hand in hand. The Tavistock worked with the endocrinology team at University College Hospital London. We had half day workshops with clinicians where Tavistock staff were present. We had parents who'd come with their kids from all over the country. We had presentations about what the hormones do, future implications. We did kind of workshops and little paired up in groups and explored it and had the opportunity to develop questions. So we were so equipped with as much knowledge and understanding. And I think it was a very balanced decision. And I wholeheartedly now, seven years down the line from Tyler, coming out as trans, know that it was the right decision for us at the time. There was the independent report by Dr. Hilary Cass, 
which said that the Tavistock was struggling. It was had waiting lists that were too long, as yeah. you yourselves experienced, that it wasn't keeping routine and consistent data. And perhaps this is the most compelling or troubling criticism that once patients were identified as having gender-related distress, then other issues that they had, perhaps they were neurodivergent, for example, could be overlooked. So there was a suggestion there that there was a pressure on staff to affirm some kind of gender dysphoria and to prescribe certain drugs, as I say, for fear perhaps of being thought transphobic. Yeah, and I think you do need to talk to other parents who've had other experiences. That absolutely wasn't our experience, but I think clearly I thought it was bad enough that we waited nine months for the first appointment. I know I'm now hearing that young people are waiting so long that they're actually going straight to adult services and not getting that support. So in some ways, for me, it seems that the service isn't well resourced. And the fact that it's the only children's service for the whole of England. So yes, they have outreach in, I think they had outreach in Exeter and Leeds. I think the proposals to then have regional centres linked to children's hospitals where there's more resource, where there are specialists that can provide all of that follow up in a holistic setting. Actually, closing the Tavistock is a good thing because people will get better care. And I think that the issue we had that, that caused us the biggest problem was a lack of cooperation from our GP. So every two months, we were making a four and a half hour round trip for a two minute hormone injection that our doctor wouldn't give my son. So I think had those things been regionalised and localised with experts and local children's hospitals, it's a question of resourcing. I don't think it's a question of approach. but Except, I suppose, the classic case, if you like, the case which went to the High Court, the case of Kira Bell. Kira said that she was prescribed puberty blockers at the age of 16, then had testosterone at the age of 20, had a double mastectomy, so followed the path of transitioning from female to male, just like Tyler, but then said that she'd made a mistake and argued mm. that the clinic should have challenged her more. And it's it's that kind of case which gives people pause for thought. I feel really strongly about that, that in some ways that instance is perhaps more of a complaint that she wasn't given the pathway she should have been given, whereas we were. It isn't that the pathway was wrong. It was that that individual didn't get the support that they needed. And I think that from what I know of the Bell case is that clearly there were multiple bad decisions by her own description going well into her adult life. So I think it's a really unfortunate case and I don't think it helps anybody. I also wish that the amount of press coverage that the Kirabel case is given would be given to the hundreds and hundreds of cases of happy instances that have gone through the Tavistock, that people would hear from more people like me and that there wasn't so much put on the just tiny, minute cases of people that are unhappy with the choices that they've made or the things that they have told people to get what they want. I really think it's an unfair, unbalanced level that is given to those cases. I wish that people like me were heard from more. One of the reasons why that's happened, of course, is that trans people, and I don't wish this podcast to be part of this process, have been caught up in a horrible culture war on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And that culture war has been initiated on the right by people who 
don't really want trans people, I would suggest, to have equal rights, but also by feminists who've argued about the rights of women, which they see as being challenged by the development of trans identity. So it's a very difficult area to even negotiate and where sometimes people don't want to have an open discussion about it. Many of the discussions seem to be driven by other agendas. Absolutely. It does feel very hard to see just those words, the trans debate, the trans agenda that, you know, Mm. just that my livelihood that, you know, things I've gone through just to be put up for debate. It's very hard to see. um, And And I um, apologise for doing that in that way, but you you understand where I'm coming from with that. Yeah, no, I understand. And I think more conversations need to happen. But I do think that you know, as I said before, I wish that there was more of a balance of the press coverage and stories and cases of so many people that, you know, say the same things as me, that the intervention that I had was absolutely life-saving and, and has given me the the tools that I needed to continue in my life and to be more authentically myself. I just wish that there was more of a level playing field in that regard. No, trans rights do not impact on women's rights. I'm a, I'm a woman of a certain age. I'm a cis woman in my 50s. And I can assure you that I, you know, trans rights do not impact on women's rights at all. They really don't. And I don't know where trans men fit into the agenda of trans women taking away spaces. You know, there's so little said about trans men and how they fit into that turf agenda. So I, I would love to hear where that fits in because of the things that they spew just don't match the entire population of the trans community that's the story of tyler then with his mom joe happy customers as it were of the gender identity development service at the tavistock let's hear now from hannah barnes author of time to think which casts a very critical eye over the service welcome hannah great to speak to you and full declaration we are former colleagues at the bbc Hannah, on that account of it, the story of Tyler, the Tavistock does appear to have done things by the book, as it were. Oh, absolutely, Adrian. And in my book as well, I absolutely acknowledge I've spoken to people who, like Tyler, have had a really positive experience at JIDS. They've been helped. They're now trans adults, just like him, who described the treatment they received and the care they got as life-saving. So I'm not for a moment disputing that the service hasn't helped young people at all. I'm absolutely not. And I think the difficulty is, and this is something that the CQC picked up on, the Care Quality Commission, the healthcare regulator, and Hilary Cass, obviously, in her independent review of the services, is that there hasn't been consistency in JIDS. There's been, you know, a clinician's lottery, it's described. Uh, And this came up time and time again with the people I spoke to, and it's been spotted by those who've looked independently as well. You know, you can have assessments that are long and thorough and really exploratory, like Tyler describes, but there have been others that have been very quick, um, two, three, four sessions. And I've spoken both with young people who've been part of assessments that they say haven't been thorough enough and also clinicians who have conducted those that have said we didn't always do good assessments so I'm not for a moment doubting that the service has helped some people and I've spoken to them and obviously we've heard Tyler there and his mum but it also has not helped and actually it's harmed some people too. Yeah and children younger than Tyler were prescribed puberty blockers and I think one of the most shocking things about the book which I have read in detail, and it is well worth reading because it's a very detailed and thorough book, was that the evidence base, certainly for prescribing 
puberty blockers and cross hormones, hormones which effectively would change your gender. The evidence base for that was questionable, at the least, and perhaps non-existent in some areas. I think that's right. And again, I've tried to take this evidence-based approach. And actually, you know, when the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, undertook a thorough evidence review, the effects, if you like, or the benefits of using puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, actually, to treat gender-related distress, that they found the evidence base to be very low. There was no strong evidence either way that they cause benefit or harm. The studies are all very small. There's short-term follow-up. They're open to potential bias. And even gender clinicians working across the world sort of acknowledge this, that the evidence base is lacking. We do have studies that so short-term high satisfaction, if you like, from people who have taken the treatments, but we really don't have a robust evidence base here. When you talk about no evidence base at all, I think... For some young people, that is almost fair to say that, you know, the evidence base that existed, which started in the Netherlands from the team in the Netherlands, was for a very select group of young people who had lifelong gender incongruence from childhood, who were psychologically stable, who had very supportive home lives. And pretty much every clinician I spoke to, and indeed, you know, the leaders of JIDS have have said this publicly as well, JIDS referred people for puberty blockers who simply did not meet those criteria from the Dutch studies, which are to this day understood to be the best evidence that is there. They applied it to people whose gender incongruence only started in adolescence, who often had many other difficulties that they were contending with, and who sometimes weren't in very stable living environments. So I think it's safe to say that the evidence base doesn't support, albeit it's a very limited evidence base anyway, but it certainly doesn't support many of the young people that JIT referred. And you've touched on something there which intrigued me as well, that sense that people who had gender incongruence almost always had other issues going on. So this question of whether gender incongruence comes first and then may lead to other issues, perhaps depression in your life, or whether the depression or some other trauma or issue in your life ends up causing the gender incongruence. Now, that's not to deny that there are people who are, to use the tabloid cliche, born in the wrong body. I would suggest it's clear that there are some people, but whether that applied to the increasing numbers of people who were treated at JIDS is a question that's left hanging. I think that's absolutely right. We just don't know. And, you know, as I've already said, I've spoken to people who were very happy there. And clinicians, even those who were most concerned, they all said that they put forward young people for the blocker and they saw them thrive. And they did see that. But for many others, that wasn't the case. So it could well be. And absolutely, I'm not denying that For some young people, a medical transition will be the best path for them. And I think really what I've been told by the clinicians working there and the young people themselves who are now young adults, some of whom this hasn't worked for, would say that just as there appear to be different ways, if you like, into the gender incongruence, perhaps there might need to be different ways out of it as well. So one may be a physical transition, but certainly not for all. And and this is what Hilary Cass has found, that... 
there need to be different treatment pathways that cater for the best interests of all of these young people, not just for those for whom a physical transition will be the best outcome. And we've heard Tyler's story of how it can go right. When things go wrong with the use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, what goes wrong? Well, what can go wrong? So I've spoken to one young trans man in the book called Jacob. And interestingly, he was on the blockers from the age of 12 for four years. Really, they didn't work for him. So he still continued to have showings, as he calls them, spots of blood. And his puberty was still happening, but more slowly than it would normally. And his bones became very weak. He broke four bones in that space of time. He was very, very unhappy, very depressed far more so than he had been prior to starting the blocker. And ultimately, he got to the age of 16, and the decision was, as the pathway progresses, he had to make a decision about whether to go on to testosterone, and he chose not to. He's 19 now. He still identifies as trans. He still presents as male, but he's not living with any hormonal intervention. And I think that was really interesting that Joe and Tyler said there's not one way to be trans either and his criticism of JIDS was that certainly they felt that they were rushed as a family into blockers I know that wasn't Tyler's experience but he had four appointments he was 11 when he started and 12 when he went on to the blocker after his fourth appointment and they say he and his mum Michelle that they weren't asking for the blocker actually so that was their experience another young woman I've spoken to didn't actually start puberty blockers at JIDS despite being offered them she was 16 at the time she didn't see any benefit to them because she'd gone through puberty she just wanted testosterone so she stayed with the service to get her into adult services as quickly as possible got testosterone at her first appointment because she had a JIDS assessment um a double mastectomy a year later and is now detransitioned and she identifies as female again and you know she's doing well now actually we caught up recently but She's angry because she says that the JIDS assessment just wasn't thorough enough. It didn't explore things that were quite obvious to her now, looking back, that she was a repressed lesbian. She'd had a same-sex relationship, been made to feel ashamed about it, had mental health difficulties, disordered eating. She was a heavy social media user. And none of this, she said, was explored by JIDS. And therefore, the assessment wasn't very thorough, but it was taken as gospel by adult services. So I'm not saying that those are representative of the entire group of young people that have been through JIDS. And in fact, we just don't know. We know that the services helped people. We know that others have been harmed. And we don't really know the numbers either side because we don't have the data. We don't have the follow-up data. Which is itself part of the problem, isn't it? Why did this course of treatment become the predominant pathway? Well, it was the only pathway in terms of a treatment pathway, but I am not suggesting at all that the majority went on to it, if that makes sense. So JIDS describes itself as an assessment service. It's assessing people for suitability for physical interventions. It does not and could not offer long-term extensive talking therapies because they argue that that isn't what they were commissioned to do. And the idea was that they would assess someone's gender difficulties and it would be up to local mental health services, so-called CAMs, you know, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, to deal with any other difficulties that that young person was facing. But in reality, CAMs is in a dreadful state. It's been underfunded. It has 
far more people wanting its help than it can provide help for. There have been cuts, austerity Britain, if you like. And so JIDS wasn't doing that work. Arguably, it wasn't commissioned to do it, the stuff outside of gender. And CAMS wasn't doing it either. So all of those other things got overlooked and these young people fell through the cracks. Now, that isn't to say that they would all go on to puberty blockers, but that was the treatment pathway that JIDS could offer, a referral. And for those for whom didn't or didn't want to, there was no other help, really. So how did you end up there? Well, the model changed when it became nationally commissioned in 2009. It became obviously more accessible to people all over the country. In 2011, it started a study to look at what the impact would be of blocking puberty earlier, because they acknowledged that the data was very limited. All we had really was these Dutch studies. But instead of waiting for the results of that data to come out, having acknowledged that we need to test this for ourselves, they didn't wait. And then they just rolled out early intervention, as it was called. So the earlier blocking of puberty, you you mentioned it earlier. I know um, that it was 16 at one point and it became 12 for the study. And then actually all age limits were taken away and it became the stage of puberty. It's called Tanner stage two, but essentially you have to have started puberty, but it's very early on. And that was rolled out along with an assessment model where the service specification currently states most assessments will typically be between three and six sessions, by which point a decision would be made. Now, as time went on, many clinicians extended that because they saw that the young people presenting were far more complicated and it wasn't appropriate to make a decision so quickly. And I can hear from Tyler's case, it it didn't happen then either. But certainly in many circumstances, or in some, it was. You know, why that happened, I don't know. I mean, No. So you talk about, though, inadequacies in the broader CAM service, the Child Adolescent Mental mm-hmm. Health Service, which essentially put too much pressure onto the JIDs at the Tavistock. But you also talk about the very close relationship between the Tavistock and the pro-trans charity Mermaids and there is a suggestion in the book isn't there that people who raised the alarm were fearful of being seen as transphobic so even clinicians practitioners who did what was expected of them nevertheless were were wary about doing that but also didn't want to be seen as being transphobic. That There was a cultural weight within the organisation. Yeah, there was. And every clinician I spoke to spoke about the at least perceived influence of mermaids. But I think there is evidence that they were influential. I have named clinicians saying that the head of mermaids requested on a number of occasions for a young person to have their clinicians changed because presumably they weren't being referred for physical interventions. And that was accepted and and those clinicians were changed. We know that there are emails between those at board level of the Tavistock, not JIDS, but wanting to liaise with Mermaids about the content of JIDS's website to make sure that it's consistent with Mermaids's website. And we know that when a JIDS member of staff wrote a, a review about a book that Mermaids didn't like, Mermaids put in a parliamentary submission that there should be an audit of the thoughts of JIDS staff. So I don't think that that was paranoia in a way, that they feared the judgment or whatever of mermaids. But I think it's also important to say that mermaids did not get everything that it asked for by any means. It pushed for years to change, to reduce the age at which young people could be referred 
for cross-sex hormones or gender-affirming hormones, and that did not happen. So I think it's almost a bit more subtle than people want to believe. And I think the influence of mermaids, or certainly the perception of mermaids, the fear of them, if you like, meant that it wasn't necessarily that they were always influencing clinical practice, but more that they didn't change direction at JIDS when perhaps they should and could have because of a fear of how others would respond. I don't know if that's clear, but it's not always overt. One clinician describes perhaps this is why the service was so reluctant to put things on paper, because if it was on paper, it could be scrutinised by groups and then inevitably they would come in for criticism. So I think it was more subtle. I think people have suggested mermaids were running the show. It's not as simple as that at all. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. And I just want to end on a thought around the culture wars, because you've mentioned subtlety. And as I've mentioned, I know you of old and anyone less like a culture warrior, I cannot imagine. And I mean that as a compliment. The trans debate is so toxic. And Tyler said to me, I don't want to be a debate. I don't want to be an issue. I just want to live my life. I'm not an issue. I'm not a debate. And kind of rejecting the framing of his experience in that way. But I think you understand what I mean when I say that, that when we talk about trans issues, there are feminist arguments around trans people. There are culture war issues from the right about trans people. There are advocates of trans rights. And it's a space which has become so poisonous so mm. toxic that I wonder that you that you have the courage to say some of the very brave things that you've said in this book and whether there's been any blowback on that and whether you were concerned that people might seize on your findings who don't have the honourable intentions that you do. Not to unpick there. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank you. I mean, I've tried to, and you've read it, so you'll know that it's not written in an hysterical way at all. I've tried to be calm and evidence-based. And, you know, I would say to Tyler and other trans people that I am absolutely not debating their lives. I acknowledge that, you know, it's absolute right to transition. The work that we started at Newsnight has continued in the book. You know, we've never questioned trans identities, nor anyone's right to transition. For me, the book is a healthcare story, and it's whether in each and every case, young people experiencing distress around their gender got the best care possible. And it's great that Tyler feels he did. And I've spoken to others who shared that, but some people did not. And we can't ignore those stories, just as we shouldn't ignore the success stories. And There has to be a way to create a service which caters for both those for whom a trans outcome is the best outcome and who will live as happy trans adults and for those for whom it won't be the right thing to transition. And I think that's all I'm saying. Now, and to some of your other points, of course, people who are not coming at it from my calm perspective may use some of the things in the book for their own purposes and that is not something I can control the book taken as a whole is I think very fair and very balanced and 
very grounded in evidence. And I think people would have read newspaper headlines and drawn their own conclusions. But, you know, it's got a very different tone to some of those headlines. But I think also the fear of backlash and the fear of response, and as you mentioned, the absolute toxicity of the debate has meant actually we collectively as adults have let down some of these young people. They've not had the care that they should have because people have been too frightened to scrutinise this service like we would any other part of the NHS because the word gender is put in there. And I think it's possible to question the care provided by a service without questioning the young people who use that service. Hannah, thank you. That's Hannah Barnes, the author of Time to Think. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast produced in Birmingham by me and Harvey White and funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details about how to subscribe to our brilliant monthly newspaper over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.